0: When we have visits from the senior disciples of Lumpur it's always useful as they remind us of some of the core teachings and themes of practice that he emphasized whoever the teacher may be they, even though they have their personal reflections and experiences there's certain themes that are common to, that keep reoccurring when people recollect how Ajahn Chah taught and the way of practice in the monastery one of the Themes is the the taught us to respect and revere that which is worthy of respect and worthy of uh, reverence. So the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. The way we train in the monastery development of respect is something that comes with the practice and it's displayed through body, speech and mind. So people always comment when they visit a, a monastery in the tradition of Lumpur Cha, how often people are bowing. When they enter the hall, when enter a room, go and visit a teacher. This is showing respect in a physical way. It's just one manifestation of a wholesome quality of mind that one is developing constantly, continually inclining the mind towards the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, just as we incline our body when we bow physically, we're inclining our mind to recollect the qualities of the Buddha, to appreciate and value the qualities of the Buddha, the enlightenment of the Buddha, the sacrifice of the Buddha the wisdom and compassion of the Buddha and we incline towards the Dhamma. The qualities of the Dhamma, as we chant, is that which protects us, guards over us. Even though the Dhamma is truth, it's an impersonal thing, because it's truth, when the mind inclines towards truth and practices in line with truth, then this has a natural protective quality. And even Nibbāna, you know, the mind that is completely realized or penetrated the truth, the Four Noble Truth, is described as the, a place of sa- safety, security, So we respect the Dhamma as the mind inclines towards Dhamma, reflects on Dhamma, it gains safety and obviously peace, clarity and understanding. So not only do we respect the Dhamma, we respect the practice that leads to Dhamma. Have respect, then it's valuing and remembering the importance of heedfulness of the path, of the path of practice, sila, samadhi, panya. If you respect something, that means you give value to it, you appreciate it. This is something we have to keep recollecting because our habit is to forget and to incline towards avijja, not knowing, unawareness and we incline towards the Dhamma we're inclining towards the practice of heedfulness so we respect heedfulness respect it in other people, respect it in ourselves as the important valuable quality of mind, and obviously shy away from a lack of heedfulness or carelessness, anything that is taking the mind away from the Dhamma. As we practice more and more, then we tend to value it less. And obviously we, Develop respect for sangha. The qualities of sangha, the area sangha, the qualities that bring human beings to penetrate the four noble truths and free their minds from wrong views and attachments and craving. In practical terms, it's also. Resp- ref- manifests in our daily practice. so We respect sangha, the sangha members around us, our fellow practitioners. It helps us to transcend some of our more worldly conditioning, our preferences for friends and our aversion to enemies. Rather, we see the potential for good in all of the Sangha members, those who have gone forth, given up the home life, gone forth to practice whatever their personality, whether we like them or not, as a respect for that aspiration and that renunciation of one who has gone forth. And in the Sangha of Chā, we put a lot of emphasis on respecting seniority because it's a wise ways to live. You respect the senior monks in a monastery or in the sangha as a whole because they're the ones who've been practicing longest. As long as they're keeping the Vinaya and practicing correctly whether you like their personality or not they'll have many valuable qualities that we can respect just the patience and endurance of having practiced for many, many years. The knowledge, the experience they've gained, the renunciation and so on. These are all qualities we can appreciate and show respect for. So we, as we train, sometimes outwardly we show respect. So Put our hands together in Anjali when we're talking to senior monks, we bow, we assist them, attend to them, wash their bowls, wash their robes, assist them in different ways. Numpo cha always reminding us when you're doing that, you're not doing it as a favor for that person, even though that thought might come up. You're doing it for something greater You're doing it because it's a wholesome way to live and it's the correct attitude, the correct Dhamma when you show respect and appreciation particularly for elders, those who have taught us, those who have sacrificed for us, given up for us. Often that's not very fashionable in our society these days. But for those who practice the Dhamma, they see, still see the value of this. Lampocha also is always emphasizing the value of Kanti, patience, endurance, in the practice. Because again, we're coming from a background of kilesas, craving and attachment, conditioning our mind. And now we're learning to restrain that conditioning process. We have to be very patient with the reactions and the moods that we experience as we practice. So, those who lived with him, they remember his own great Mm. patience. Patience as a teacher with all those who lived and studied under him. Their different characters, habits, positive and more negative behaviors. He had great patience in his teaching, and that obviously stemmed from his own practice. He'd shown great patience and endurance in his practice. Another quality he taught is to how to be content with little and learn to be content with little content with what comes our way as monks to be patient with the conditions whether we satisfied or not with the four requisites that we have available to us to be patient to be patient with our fellow meditators and practitioners and most of all to be patient with our own states of mind that arise from day to day, moment to moment, is always encouraging monks to be patient. It almost is a practice in itself but not without end or reason. It's a practice is obviously supporting the goal of developing insight into the Four Noble Truths, bringing one of the supportive qualities that brings the mind to the point where it can see suffering, its cause, can abandon the cause and experience some liberation from suffering through the practice. But to get to that point, we have to have patience, keep returning to the practice, keep putting effort in, the practice patiently and he always said patience really stems from our faith our satha which is probably why in the teaching of the five indriyas or the five powers satha always comes first so if we're really going to keep returning to patient effort into the practice then we have to have faith some conviction in the practice and in the value of it. I remember one time I was, when I went to one of my first katinas at my preceptor's monastery, Ajahn Mahamon, one of his disciples was Ajahn Lai, who came to visit here a few years ago. In those days he was only a few years a monk and it was katina and in those days katina ceremony meant you. St- spent all night listening to Dhamma talks and you didn't leave the hall other than maybe for a few moments just to go to the toilet. People adhered to that practice very strictly both the sangha and laity. So it meant for the resident sangha in the monastery when there was a katina ceremony, a very busy time, very tiring occasion, exhausting occasion. They often were staying up all day, preparing the place and stay up all night facilitating the meditation and the talks and often stay up the next day clearing up and sorting things out. I remember I was just learning Thai and I asked Ajahn Lai who had been up all night organising many things and the next day after the meal he was still assisting his teacher and doing many things. I said, "Well, how do you do this? You've been up all day yesterday, up all night, and you're up again today. He said, the usual kind of answer, he said, otton, patience, endurance. So, So I said, well, where does the otton come from? And he said, sata, faith, confidence in the practice. If you have faith, then you are willing to put forth effort and put up with difficulties, put up with feelings of tiredness, painful feelings in your leg, frustrations, whatever. I remember he he was one who never complained, always had quite a pleasant mood, never complained, never seemed to worry about having to put forth effort, get tired, My last question to him was, well, you put forth all this effort with faith, with patient endurance, when do you rest? He just said, well, when all the work's done and the event's over, then you rest. He says, a wise monk learns to rest. When it's time to rest, you rest. When it's time to do your duties, you do your duties. Very simple. And this is the way and Chahariam encouraged us to practice. Put forth effort. Obviously when you're ill or you're exhausted, you take a rest. But if there's still things you have to do, meditation that's not yet done, work not yet done, well you do it. This is how your mind matures, these spiritual faculties mature, through patient effort, based on faith, based on respect for that which is wholesome and true, the Buddha Dhamma Sangha and the way of practice. Another flavor that ran, ran through his teachings, the flavor of renunciation and sacrifice. A sacrifice for the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, for the practice whether it's sacrifice in one's own meditation by putting forth effort being willing to sit with pain or unpleasant mind states or sleepiness and sacrifice for the community as a whole through the practice of metta and karuna acts of service when I was a young monk staying at Wat whenever there was a job, sometimes Lumpur Liam would sit at the top of the line and say, today we have a job of work that needs doing. He'd never actually appoint monks to do the job, or you he never heard that. He would just announce something needs doing. There'd always be those monks who <coughs> would make it their job to, do, to go and do that job, and make it their practice. It was almost like they were competing either with themselves or maybe with the other sangha members to do the job, to actually compete with their own desire, that part of their mind would want to go back to the kuti, practice, do other things, be comfortable, competing with that to see if they could let go of their own personal desires, put them aside to do whatever the job was that needed doing. So they were making the situation into a practice. Nobody was making them do that, it was entirely voluntary. But they were seeing seeing it as a practice. Or there are other monks who used the the training and the way of renunciation and sacrifice, sometimes they just would never ask for anything. That was their practice. They'd just try and get by with whatever requisites came their way. Never ask for any extra food or drinks, robes. Never ask for a kuti or any particular requisites. They'd just get by. And it wasn't because they were shy or scared. It was a conscious decision just not to ask. almost like a competition again see how long they could go without asking for something building up a kind of momentum in the mind to the point where if if they were to ask for a requisite it's like you know that's giving in to a kalesa, giving in to something so it'd only be done with the most reluctance again nobody making them do this but just as a a way of using the practice, taking some of the themes that Ajahn Chah emphasised and then practicing with them. Another theme that he was always emphasising was to abandon diti and mana. And Ditti, the attachment to views and opinions, and ultimately, Sakya the view that the five khandhas are a self and belong to a self, but just the way views and opinions come up all the time. You know, when you it can be the most simple thing, like you can you could see two monks having an argument over the way to sweep the sala, a very simple task, just sweeping, but one monk would want to sweep from one direction, another monk would want to sweep from another direction. Would anyone else nearby see the argument, they just say, ah, this is ditty. You know, just a simple sense of self coming up on the most ordinary activity, like sweeping the hall. Could be the way we wash our bowl, the way we sit, the way we put our robes on, All the most ordinary, repetitive activities can become an occasion for views and opinions to slip out. The way to do things, the way the monastery is, let alone views and opinions about the wider world, what we like and don't like about the world. Just the more ordinary, mundane things provided plenty of backdrop for views and opinions to arise. This is mine, that's yours. Whether it's just a thought, a view, an opinion, a physical object like a requisite. And sometimes they had a rule that you couldn't leave your robes or your bowl in the eating hall after the meal. You have to clear them away. As Soon as the bell went for dismissal you had to take them away And if your bowl or your robes were left there, even if they were nicely folded and in a nice pile, not bothering anyone, you might come back later that day and they'd been locked away in the store cupboard. You'd have to go and find the store monk to try and retrieve your bowl and robes, as long as you couldn't do it. It was very embarrassing. So maybe a monk would leave his bowl and robe, maybe even someone would move it sometimes even with good intention move it so that they wouldn't lo- lose their bowl and robe wouldn't have to go and reclaim it from the store someone would move it but then they wouldn't know that that person's moved it for a good reason they come along and get all upset who's moved my bowl who's moved my robes and actually it was their friend trying to help them save them from getting their bowl locked up they'd find out their friend has moved it and go and get angry with their friends for moving their bowl until they found out the reason why and then their anger subsided. It's all what we call dhiti and mana sense of self, conceit, attachment to views, sense of rights, ownership, come up in all different ways. There'd be certain privileges for senior monks Maybe they didn't have to attend a certain chore or a certain meeting. Junior monks, sometimes not happy with that, they want the same. And this is mana. Maybe a senior monk's not happy if a junior monk doesn't show respect, gets upset. It's more mana, more sense of self. I remember nun saying how there was one monk who was always trying to get extra privileges. And in Mwapapong, the eating hall, you have three entrances. You have an entrance near where the senior monk sits and they leave from that when they go on Bindabhata. An Entrance in the middle for the junior monks and entrance at the end for the novices. And you have to go in and out by your own entrance. But there's no one policing that, it's just an unspoken understanding in the Sangha. If a junior monk went out the senior monk's entrance, it's like considered disrespectful, casual, unmindful behavior. Very simple thing that could be quite meaningful. You casually just pick your bowl up and walked out of the entrance for the senior monks. Other people looking, they say, oh, this monk. Yeah, you know, they can't be bothered. We're just very absent-minded, doesn't know what he's doing. just a very simple little action could... Uh, earn a criticism or just a stern look but then sometimes mm-hmm. monks would come out late for Bindabhata and they're in a hurry mm-hmm. if you go out the senior monk's entrance well, you, it's like a shortcut you get quicker to where you need to get to so sometimes monks picking up the bowl nun once he said he was picking up his bowl he was late, and didn't want to be late because Ajahn Chah had already left so he rushed out the senior monk's entrance. Another monk saw him and sternly rebuked him. He shouldn't be doing that, disrespectful. It's true, it wasn't the practice, it shouldn't have been done. He was just trying to save time. Then the next day he was at Bindabhata, he was going out the proper entrance and he noticed that same monk who had rebuked him was also late and did exactly the same thing but he didn't rebuke him he just noticed sometimes it's like that you live in a community one day you get rebuked next day maybe the one who rebuked you doing the same thing themselves in the end we have to take personal responsibility and see how our own ego views opinions conceit is prompting our actions our speech and work on that, sometimes it's just uncertain. We can't draw conclusions from other people's behavior, just have to be sure of what we're doing. Sometimes a chao would say, some monks talk too much always talking, always looking for someone to give a dhamma talk to. Again, the the ditti and mana is very strong. so They feel they have to teach and teach newcomers, teach other monks, teach the lay people. You'd say some monks are so desperate to teach, they end up going to teach the trees in the forest if there's no one else to listen to, to them. You say, look to the underlying cause, the diti, the manā, the sense of self. Sometimes we feel we have to be expressing an opinion on the dhamma to feel valued. Other monks, the opposite, very quiet, never want to speak, never want to speak up, never want to display an opinion, maybe very shy or timid. Sajjan Chah sometimes he would get them, put them on the high dhamma seat in front of everybody to give a dhamma talk. It was the last thing they wanted to do. He was pushing them to go through some of their own attachment. It's still a form of diti and mana. You can have the view I should be giving dhamma talks. You have the view I shouldn't be giving dhamma talks. I should be quiet in the background. They're both views that you can attach to. These were some themes that you hear over and over again. Patience, endurance, renunciation, sacrifice, letting go of views, letting go of conceit, respect, respect for the other monks and harmony, always emphasizing harmony because Anjan Cha always reminded us how if the Sangha is in harmony, then everybody benefits. If the Sangha is in disharmony, everybody suffers. So it's in our own interest to promote harmony, set aside our petty differences and attachments learn to accept each other learn to work together support each other help each other when we need help with a conscious aspiration to develop and promote harmony as the buddhist community as a whole relies on the sangha to take the lead It's very hard, as we know in the world, to find harmonious groups of people. The way of unenlightened people is always to split apart because of their dittimana. Whatever it is, whether it's from politics or race, culture, social group, income, job, gender, age, what footy team you like, people are always splitting apart. So the sangha, one of the functions and roles of the sangha is to lead people in how to be harmonious and set aside some of these more superficial attachments for the greater good in developing the practice for Nibbana. So living in Wat Bapong or Branch Monasteries of Wat Bopong, these are themes that come up over and over again. Letting go of self. This is the daily bread and butter of our practice, letting go of our sense of self that arises in the way we eat, the way we conduct ourselves, the way we talk, the way we do things with chores, Lumpur and you can see whether somebody's really intent on practising and looking at how they do the chores. Is their heart in it? Are they mindful and focusing on doing whatever chore they're doing? Or are they just there in a kind of half-hearted way, just trying to keep everyone else happy so they don't get in trouble? Or just do the minimum till they can get away and do their own thing? or sometimes just not turning up at all. In Thailand, the classic was always around robe-washing day. You have a dyeing shed and you boil water. It, It takes a lot of effort. Often it's a whole day's job. Chopping wood chips, making a fire, boiling the water, making the dye, washing robes, and then cleaning up. And he'd always say there's always those monks who come in, quickly wash their robes and disappear, never help clear up, never help do the preparation, never help do the cleaning up. They go back to their kuti and sleep, they think they're very smart, but they don't get so much out of the practice when they're following kilesa. just how the attitude we have, or how we approach our chores can be very informative of our practice. And it's up to us to take responsibility. If you're assigned a chore, will you do it? Again, you're not doing it as a favour for others. You're doing it to train yourself to see if you have the discipline, the attention, the ability to pay attention, complete a job, a job of work, and obviously it provides a service for everyone else. But you make it into a meditation in itself, doing a chore, doing a job of work. The understanding being that when we develop these themes in our daily life the patience, the respect, renunciation, the commitment to the practice well. The result is then meditation develops out of that. It's creating the fertile ground for the development of mindfulness, wisdom, insight, and letting go of self on every level. On the level of Sina, it's just letting go of the coarse self, in the the moods, the emotions that make us want to break the precepts. First of all, you're restraining them developing the mindfulness, the awareness to do that. Then working inwards, letting go of the sense of self on the more subtle level, developing mindfulness, samadhi, and then contemplating the different unwholesome mind states that arise, arise based on greed, anger, delusion. If we keep developing a meditation object then naturally there will be times when the mind has enough mindfulness, enough awareness to see the impermanent nature of, all, of a mind state. And whatever reaction or emotion you ca- have coming up, you hold your attention long enough you can see it just arises, passes away. It's nothing in itself and the mind returns to it you might say, a state of nothingness, emptiness. How many times have we been angry before, worried before, upset, confused before? In know, just in our time living in the monastery, you can see over and over again, you've had many different moods, mental states arise. They've all arisen and ceased. None of them are permanent. None of them are a a real self. What arises and ceases can't be taken as self. When mindfulness slips, when we're not putting enough effort into developing mindfulness, then obviously we do believe our thoughts and our moods, and they become very important, too important. So we keep holding on to them and that's where we get stressed and suffer. That's why we have conflicts with others, conflicts within ourselves, doubts, worry. Sometimes um would give very tough, tough love, tough metta in monks who are suffering with confusion or doubt. Or unhappy about something, and go to him hoping for some comfort or some words of advice. And he might just say, "Your problem is you're just lazy. You should go back and do more walking meditation," and just shoo them away. Wouldn't give them what they wanted at all. What they wanted was a nice comforting dhamma talk. And Shantara just sent them away. He said, do, go and walk meditation for an hour, and you'll find all your troubles disappear by themselves." Another refrain that he always brought up was to keep bringing up mindfulness and contemplating whatever the posture, standing, walking, sitting, lying down, it's the most basic practice of mindfulness. As most of us brought up in retreat situations, vipassana centers, meditation centers, we start our meditation practice like that. We get so addicted to sitting meditation that we tend to just shut off when we finish our sitting meditation, get up, walk away. We go off and talk to somebody, read something, do some activity. There's this automatic shutting off of mindfulness. We only see mindfulness practice as something we do when we sit. In other postures, other activities, it's as if you're not practicing. So over and over again Lumpur Cha encouraged us with the standing, walking, sitting, lying down. Bring up mindfulness. Pay attention to what you're doing. Pay attention to your own mind. Bring it to the present moment. Every moment is of equal value when you're practicing and developing mindfulness. It's not like I'm developing mindfulness when I'm sitting with my eyes closed, cross-legged and the rest of the time I'm not. All the time is an opportunity to practice. And the hardest practice is maybe maintaining mindfulness after we've been sitting meditation as we walk away and do other things. It's the hardest of all not to let it all disappear and dissipate. Often our remedy is to avoid people, which quite often that's a good, good remedy, but it's still not the final solution, because we go away on our own, but we're still on our own, still going to let our mind wander all over the place. Alan Bo said, when you go back to your kuti or your grot, you count the number of steps it takes from the hall to your kuti. Can you maintain mindfulness like that? How many steps? Is it a thousand, fifteen hundred, just depending where your kuti is? How many thoughts spring up into the mind and take over the mind just in walking from the hall back to your kuti? When we wake up in the morning, how many times do we roll over wanting to sleep a bit more? As far as I can see, the attitude he was encouraging was to develop wakefulness, especially in our lifestyle, where we often don't have a lot of pressures and a lot of things we have to do. Maybe the most senior monks do, but generally, as a junior monk, you don't have a lot of pressure. You can actually afford to do the practices like when you wake up in the morning, just get out, get out and carry on practicing. Without worrying about how much sleep you've had or what you're going to do later today, so all the monks living with Lupochar used to say you never could indulge in sleep around Lupochar. you're always dedicating yourself to wakefulness, even if You weren't in his immediate vicinity. The feeling was, I shouldn't sleep. I shouldn't indulge. these are just a few of the themes and recollections of the way he taught, the way the monks practiced, and it's still carried on today. But often, people who haven't lived in his monastery or didn't know him personally, are not fully aware of the flavor of the practice. And obviously, there's many, many aspects to his teaching. These are only a few. But they're the kind of the nourishing qualities that help help us to develop a, a strong, Practice of meditation and then strong wisdom through contemplation. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight.